you're going to want to break out the balloons for today's podcast. And that's all I'll say about it. I'm not going to make any party puns, nothing like that. So if you thought I was going to do it, I'm not. Okay. Sorry to ruin the party. Nope. Said I wouldn't do it. Let's just move on. This is today's Authentic Avenue. Party City. Pretty self-explanatory. Your one-stop shop for everything celebration. My guest today is Julie Rame. She's their chief marketing and experience officer, which made me particularly interested in talking with her, not because I talk to CMOs all the time, but because this is one of the few CXOs I've chatted with. She's also had a rich history across different brands, including within auto, which is a current industry of interest for me, and other roles she's had, including chief storyteller, just made me curious to hear her story. Today we talk about a number of things like how Julie joined the Party City team amidst a number of new leadership arrivals and how that affected her relative seat at the table, the importance of experience, that being her job, and how to look for good culture, and particularly how to walk away from a company when you see that there isn't a good fit. That was something that was particularly of interest to me and might be to you as well. A great conversation today in which I just think Julie lays it on the table. She says what she thinks, and I like that. I think you will too. So without further ado, let's let her do some more talking. I'll get out of the way and let you listen in as I get real with Party City and Julie Rame. Hey, Julie, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm glad that you are here. It's an interesting role that you've got and state of the current business, not only because of the times, but because of what's going on at Party City. I want to talk about all of that. And of course, get around to that final A word that I pursue so heavily on this show. But let's start at the very top, which is your interaction with Party City. You came into the fold at the very end of 2019. What brought you there? Well, you know, as all, I think as all good stories go, not by the direct path. So I... (laughs) Very good. Let's navigate the curves here. So, um... So it started off, I was an undergrad. I went to engineering school at Purdue. I became a civil engineer, but I really didn't enjoy it. I, I actually worked for Bristol Myers Squibb for two years as part of a co-op program and I could do it. I just didn't really like it, but I loved the business meeting. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just, I'll try to get my hand at business school. So I applied to business schools and I got into the University of Chicago and I immediately started. Well, that's take- a pretty great school. Did you just say, oh, I think I'll do business school. I mean, that's a top, top school. <laughs> well, thank you. It's one that is challenging for sure. But I always had this bent that like, you know, go big or go home kind of thing where I, I was like, let's just go the best. And if you can't get in the best, you work your way until you can get in there. And of course, then and I was like, well, I'll just apply to the top business schools. And, you know, luckily, the University of Chicago accepted me and I got there thinking, well, I'm going to be a finance major because, of course, I'm super quantitative in math and science. And it just took one finance course for me to decide I absolutely was not going to do that. You know, so I started to take strategy classes and negotiations classes and marketing classes. And while I was there, they had a class that was called New Products Lab, where you had to commit to being in the class for two quarters for six months. And you would be grouped in a team and then assigned to a company. And so the company that I, we were assigned to, my team, was American Airlines. So we we were charged with trying to come up with a new product for their frequent business flyer. And um, I actually really enjoyed that and ended up, um, was one of two people that they asked to come back and be an intern that summer. And so I interned there and, I, you know, it was, was really, really fun. I knew that I was onto something and kind of the strategy and 
um, marketing angle, there was enough quantitative science in me to not want to go to a marketing or strategy role that was was super traditional marketing, i.e. like CPG, just never felt right to me. What felt right was sort of that marketing in a more manufacturing or operational type of company. And so that led me to Ford Motor Company and loved it. I was the brand you know, manager for the Ford Focus, launched that in the United States for the first time, and then you know, was, was Marcom. And so I did a lot of really fun things, but when the, I, my seventh year came around, it was really my sixth year, probably it was the year 2000. That was the year, the year 2000 was the year that Daimler. So Daimler Benz a la Mercedes bought Chrysler. Um, and it became Daimler Chrysler. And so the Daimler team, I kind of poached a guy who has been a longtime friend and mentor. His name is Jim Schreier from Ford to be their EVP of marketing sales and service. And then he in turn about six months later brought over two of us. And I was obviously one of those two. And I started in June of 01. And my job was, was the uh, director of marketing communications for the Dodge brand. Now, when I got to Chrysler, the Dodge brand is not what you guys know of it today. Back in 2001, the Dodge brand, what the, the logo or the tagline was Dodge different. The spokesperson was the actor, Ed Herman. And if you've seen Ed Herman, you'll, you'll know him. He was, for any of you yep. who've seen the 1980s movie, The Lost Boys, like he was the- Well, where I've been a NASCAR fan for a long time. So Dodge, oh. in, 2000, Dodge in 2001 was very interesting to me, uh, as, as it might not be to a lot of others, but yes. So I managed that part of the- was The, the Intrepid launch? Motorsports marketing. Yeah, I got wow. I spent a lot of time in the pits and with those- yeah, that was a that was a different. That's cool. I got a lot of experience. You got yeah. to know like Bill Elliott and Everham and all those oh, guys. Yes. Wow. Yes. Well, Ray, because he had the Dodge team. Yep. So now no, exactly. Totally, yeah, I don't have no idea what your audience is, but they could get they could be tuning out. Pretty they know good. that I like NASCAR. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was super fun. Uh, Ray was a great guy. Love and the drivers. It was it was really really fun actually. Um, so we yeah that was that was sort of what we did. We changed the logo. We changed the brand tagline to "Grab Life by the Horns." I always say it's not as though, you know, me or the team that I was working with or the agency, which who was great, that we created something brand new. I always say that what we did is we we just took a look at the historical fact about what Dodge was built for back in the 60s and we just dusted off. And so part of what we did in the rebranding of the the Dodge brand was not just the tagline and and kind of trying to change it from being book smart to more street smart, which is really much more core to its heritage. But we we also brought back the Hemi engine and we put it in the Ram truck and we just redesigned the front end of the Ram truck. And anyway, I could go on and on about the auto days. I have a lot of passion and love for for my years there. But I left there in early 06 and went to Walmart as their SVP of Marcom, Marketing Communications. And after having been in the auto for industry for over a dozen years, um, to go and take a brand at the time that was still doing like the smiley face and you know, they didn't have as much of the personality in the brand, I think, that they have today. Um, and I just felt like there was no place to go but up. And it was super exciting, um, even though the company obviously was super successful even then. And um, it just ended up that despite maybe all of those factors and their interest in maybe doing things differently and taking risks and trying to grow, you know, in 06 was just, especially towards the end of 06, that was the tip of the, you know, of the big economic recession that we went through. And there was a lot of those factors in play. I think a large factor of my personal culture and personality combined with 
you know, the one that is the Walmart culture and it just wasn't a good match. And, and that's where I've kind of um, adopted a, a quote that I had heard once that culture eats strategy for lunch. And I just believe it's true. And, and it wasn't a, it wasn't successful by any stretch of the imagination in terms of what you might read or see. But I, I tend to be an optimist and I try to see the positive despite it being a really painful experience post, post Walmart. You learn so much about yourself and if you can choose to learn from it, let me put it that way, and see where who you are and what's important and what's important and how you define success, I think there's, there's no greater gift. And as a result, I ended up with my own consulting firm for five years. I would never have done that in a traditional sense, would never have planned that out, um, but had my own company for five years. And then I went on to work at SAP, again, totally crazy. Didn't know when Bill McDermott, who's the CEO, then called and asked me to come over. We talked for many years before I agreed and to come over was that I, I didn't even know what ERP stood for. I was like, I don't even know what this is you're trying to sell or what, you know, and it took a long conversation. And I really was a little reluctant, not only because maybe it wasn't a comfort zone in terms of the what, I always think you can figure that out, but because of just making sure it's like once bitten, twice shy. It was very much being uncomfortable with not knowing enough about a culture and not being able to be a part of it because everybody through an interview process, it's, you know, everybody's on their best behavior. And so you never really get to see or feel the culture until you're in it. And so I was just, I was just super guarded, but took on that and, and glad that I did and loved my, I spent five years at SAP really was chief storyteller and the SVP of strategic relationships. I couldn't help but notice that role. It's very cool role. Chief yeah, storyteller, almost like prescient, like before it's time. I would love to take credit for the title, but Bill McDermott, the CEO, he actually gave me the title. When we were talking, I was consulting and I was flying back from California, reading the USA Today. I always say I read the people's paper because that was like you could tell, you know, kind of the beat of the the world. And, and he was being interviewed by the USA Today and they had asked him the first question, which is a normal question is, what is it, Bill, that SAP does? And he answered by saying, look, we are, you know, we are the technology behind some of your favorite brands, Apple, Sony, Nike. Disney and, you know, kind of went on. And I remember emailing him right then in the plane and saying, Bill, so great. Congratulations again. Love that you're on the front page of the money section of the USA Today versus, you know, the vertical trades. I think it's really great to get your story out there. I said, but I'm super embarrassed to tell you that after five years of talking to you, I was kind of hoping that you were going to kind of give the seventh grade answer of what it is that SAP did. And I would finally really, truly understand it. I'm kind of embarrassed to say that. But you kind of left me hanging because I still don't know after reading this article why my service product or experience is better because they run your technology. I said, I just feel like you're missing the opportunity to be the, the modern day Intel inside. That's when he immediately wrote back and he was like, Julie, will you be my st chief storyteller? And I thought he was kidding. And I, I said, you know, I'm here, happy to, to chat with you anytime. He said, no, no, when you land, please call. And I did. And he said, come consult. We've been talking a long time. Just consult for a month and let's see what happens. And we did. And by the end of that month, which was October, um, he asked me to come on full-time as chief storyteller. So I started January 1st of 12. And um, like I said, did that for five years. Absolutely loved it. And then one of my great friends, best friends of all time from who she'd been with me in the auto industry. And, you know, us auto women, we, we kind of stick together. There's a group of us <laughs> that went back. There weren't a lot of us earlier in the day. But um, she she was CEO of another company, and this one was called Abra Auto Body and Glass, which is an automotive collision chain in the U.S. And so she reached out, and she's like, hey, do you want to come be C CMO? I was like, you know, absolutely, because what could be the next best step forward, given my career path, was but to go to a 
little known auto body collision shop chain and be their CMO. Oh, and I that's a little bit of irony there in that, but <laughs> I'm guessing there's more to it than that. Yeah, I say it tongue in cheek because it's, it, it, you know, it wasn't about, this goes back to my earlier point about that definition of success. For me, the point of, you know, my life trials and trials and tribulations was less about success as being the title, you know, the fame of the articles or the being asked to be keynote here and there, or even the money, although I do like to be paid for what I do, but it was less about all those things and more about loving what you do and being able to feel like you make a difference. And maybe that just comes with age. Um, I don't know if I would have said that early on, but um, I, you know, that was, it was really exciting because it felt like a Harvard business case in the making. So, you know, the thing with auto body collision, if anybody's had to get their car, and I mean like a body shop, not pep boys or that kind of thing, but like a true body shop, that's what these were. And, you know, if you think about it, it is the most, it's like one of the only industries. And I, I, I have put some thought into this that has totally been bypassed by the digital revolution. I mean, totally. The only other industry I could think of that maybe was also bypassed was the like dry cleaning chains. I mean, that was literally the, and even they might have got, but I mean, it's, it's really something because you've got your, probably the second most expensive, if not the most for many people thing that they will ever own, that they're probably in some sort of traumatic event, right? That they need this, you know, probably not in every case, but probably that they need to have this body repair. And so what do we do to make that easy? Well, you have to call your insurance agent. Your surgeon agent can't tell you where to go. They can only give you a list of companies. You have to then choose from one of those and call all of them because there is no way online to be able to make an appointment or get an estimate. You must do this like analog. You have to then bring your car over, let them look at it, wait for them to call you with an estimate. Then if you drop it off, you leave it there and then you sit by your phone in this traumatic time and waiting and hoping that the guy who you drop this off with, who doesn't look like a guy you might want to entrust your car to necessarily, in many cases, I'm stereotyping a bit, um, and and hoping that you get a call back. And it just seemed ridiculous to me that in this day and age, when I can know, I can order my pizza online, I can know when they're applying the pepperoni, how many minutes are left in the oven, when it's being boxed and watch it as the car is driving towards me via an app, that I can't know anything digitally about a car repair. And so this was what was exciting. I thought this was going to be like a really great opportunity to, to just make a major impact, even if in an industry that doesn't get a lot of attention nor is as big as many others. And that's what we did. We kind of got a bunch of people together that we'd all worked with before that we knew. And it was just the most joyous work experience of my life, I think, up until this one that I'm in right now, frankly. And I, I don't say that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said it if it wasn't true. I just would have glossed over it, I promise you. Uh, I'm not disingenuous that way. But the truly, it was a wonderful experience. And we were able to do such great things that were just, none of a groundbreaking, breaking. I mean, this technology has existed. This is off the shelf stuff. We just, we just took the time to put a customer experience journey map in place and to see how people went through, where people were falling off, what kind of communication they wanted, when did they want it, to what depth did they want it, to be able to see the vehicle, those kinds of things. And we, you know, we and the team that I was working with, it, we were helped to, to transform this company and we were able to turn it around and sell it in 18 months. And I was asked to stay on as um, one of the team members to help to integrate the companies. And we were the, the original team from Abra as we were um, selling to Caliber and integrating, we were out to dinner kind of having a celebration dinner and we were with our board as well. And one of our board members, one of he was an independent board member. His name's Norm Matthews. He pulled me aside and said, "Hey, would you be interested in going to a 
public company again. And I said, you know, I guess, sure. And he's like, well, I'm chairman of Party City. <laughs> Would you like to take a look? And I was like, well, I don't know. So, um, you know, I had conversations with the CEO at the time. It was, they were all clear that he was, they were looking for his replacement. He was intending to retire. He was going to join the board, but I wasn't, again, living true to my culture strategy for lunch, was not about to jump onto anything where I wasn't super sure that the CEO and the people that I was going to work with, that I had a strong chemistry with, and that we could, again, be really productive as a team and feel good about coming to work every day. And so the new CEO started Brad Weston in August of 19, had many conversations, um, kind of explained what a chief experience officer did, you know, from my experience. And I started in December of 19 as the chief experience officer uh, just before the pandemic, but the entire team is largely new, new CEO, the chief, new chief merchant started the month before me. I started, we had a new head of HR that started several months before Brad. We had a new CFO starting February. We then have a new CIO. Um, you know, so it's just, it's been a real transformation and, um, but that's kind of got me here. And, and in April of last year, I was also made chief marketing officer. So took on a lot of the digital and the website and all of that. And so we've been, we've been really working there. Our mission is to, to go from just being the seller of party goods to the provider of the total experience, because most people don't know we actually manufacture 80% of what we sell and 50 to 60% of the party goods you'll buy in other party aisles we probably make. And so we're just working to actually transform the company to be able to deliver on what we can deliver on, but also to truly integrate this company and unlock this, this potential that hasn't really been unlocked because we've really largely been, you know, integrated more on paper than in practice. And so that's, that's our goal. I do want to ask about the experience side in just a second. One quick question I do have on this most recent role, and by the way, a very rich history leading up to it, is that now you're in a position where the team came together around you, or maybe you joined it, but all very new. Now, it's my interpretation, just from what I saw on the market, and whether it be from looking at it from the marketing side or otherwise, that sometimes it has historically been difficult for the CMO or the CEO or this new CEO role, I'm talking experience, uh, to get as strong a seat at the table when it comes to devising plans and having initiatives when compared to, let's say, uh, the realism and practicality from the CFO's chair. Most of this exec team being new, do you think that makes your seat at the table stronger by default? And if not, can you talk to me a little bit more about how strongly you scrutinized the culture before joining? Yeah, it's super. I love the question. Um, and, uh, you know, as many podcast interviews that I've done, I don't think I've been asked that one. So kudos. That oh, let's go. Okay. Going to oh, put that right? Going to put that in my cap. Thank you. I love that question. Actually, it's a super interesting question. Um, so, you know, interestingly enough, I think part of it comes, uh, so the C, this the role that I play not CEO, but I call it, we do the CXO. So it's not to be confused with. I see. Okay. Very good. (laughs) So I'm the CXO and CMO is I think because Brad, in this case, Brad being our CEO, he's so customer first. He has a great marketing sensibility about him, but not trying to be, he's not a micromanager by any suggestion. Um, He's, he's very, you know, he's very interested. He's super inquisitive. He's curious. He has questions but he's also really supportive. Um, and I, and I think because of his real appreciation, love of marketing, I think particularly he's, he's got a real bent for CRM, which is much more the quantitative, less sexy, less sexy version, but yet 
the super important version of marketing that kind of is the fuel for everything else, the success of the rest of the marketing platforms. He's been a massive, like, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't want to speak too much for him, but pre my like really pushing the sort of CXO role and what we do, I think he would have told you absolutely understood the, the customer journey mapping, but the the extent that which we brought it here and the quantitative mapping of the journey versus the emotional mapping only, um, I think has been a new, has been new for him and for actually everybody in the company. And one that has really paid dividends in terms of helping to shift the culture to be more customer first, to be more, it can be done and to help us truly focus in the areas that are most relevant to our customer and are going to have the biggest bang for the buck. Because we know in the process of a transformation, one of the kisses of death is the, is just trying to do everything all at once. And so a journey mapping exercise really allows you to, yes, see all of the ugly, ugly warts, but find where the biggest ones are and really then hone in on those and tackle those before you move on. And so I think it's because of the quantity and, and, and look, in the retail world, the two retail worlds that I've lived in largely, merchants are typically are the ones who rule the day. And the merchandising team here historically had been definitely the de facto voice of the table, if you will. But in this case, I think because we were all relatively new, kind of going to your your you know point, I, we all kind of came in and were in support of one another. And I think because of the personalities and that sort of culture, there was nobody who felt like they were more than the other. Like every there, there's no doubt in every one of our mind that none of us can be successful without the support and help of the other. So everything that that I would like to say that is my purview to help to to manage and to drive and to lead, marketing, digital, uh, call center, customer experience, CRM, like you can, all media, you pick all of those, the web, none of it is possible if I don't have the proper IT support. If our supply chain isn't working, if the merchant's team doesn't have a great merchandising plan so that we can be successful with the pricing with our CFO allowing me to, to, you know, to try to make different changes in terms of our media and, and, you know, finance plan um, and budgeting plan that our CFO then has to help to manage, you know, for our overall earnings and expectations. And, it, and you know, it goes, our legal, my God, you know, nothing, you know, thank God for legal, right? Keeps our contracts clean. I could go on and on literally throughout the organization operationally in the store. What we do affects every employee in the store and employee experience is paramount because if you don't have a strong employee experience, there's almost no chance you're going to have a great customer experience. And so that knowledge and just me sort of rattling that off from my chair is I think the same thing that whether you were, you know, in this case, Sean, who is running, you know, the, he's the chief commercial officer now with the merchants and the wholesale and the operations or Jason, who's running supply chain or Mark, who's running IT. All of them would say, I think the same thing, but just mention my team in the way that I've mentioned theirs in terms of ensuring success. And I think that that is, that's sort of the beautiful thing that Brad has, should take credit for in terms of finding the right people and the right cultural fit first in terms of, of personalities and how you work together. So strong and knowledgeable, but also not so, um, you know, not so blinded by your own abilities that you're you're not open to other points of view or collaboration or partnership. And so we, it is a, you go, we go type of culture. And so we're very much, you know, we even like, if things go wrong and it's like, Oh, this isn't happening in the store. Well, that's not just the store's problem. That's all of our issue. What are we all doing to help make that easier for the store? Um, and so that whole cultural piece 
is very much, I think, a driver of A, none of us having a greater, you know, to your point, chair at the table. There's no head of the, it's a round table. And in, in, in practice, um, as you know, in practice as much as is from a physical perspective. And, um, you know, I think the other is that there's, there is a great willingness for us to win and for us to see the opportunity and the unlock here that we're all so excited that we're just to, to be able to, to unleash joy. Cause our mission is to make joy easy. Um, that we're, we're, we, it is really just jump in and help the others win. And it's, again, it, I, I was being very genuine when I said that this has been the best working relationship so far of my career. And I didn't think it was going to get better than the last one. Cause it was people that I knew and it was just so easy. This has been really positive and collaborative. I'm glad I do have one more brief question on the culture, but I'll hold it because of something that you just said. Of course, the mission today, as you've just noted, is to make joy easy. I want to ask a little bit about that CXO role in combination with the CMO role. And you've talked a little bit to date about how uh, Party City manages the manufacturing uh, and the sell-through, uh, the majority of it. So I guess to boil this question, because I could go on for like a minute or more explaining it, how does one really make joy easy in your world? Hopefully easily. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah. Um, let me tell you how we're not making it easy right now to show you kind of what we're doing to make it easy. And I think it'll make sense. Okay. So first of all, balloons, we are the largest manufacturer of Mylar balloons. So those foil balloons that you see, okay. um, we are the largest seller of them, but you know, grocery stores sell them and, and most of them are probably purchasing from us as well. But there Anagram, which is the company that makes them. But one of the truisms I think that we could all agree, anybody who's purchased balloons, is that one, there's a lot of complexity because unlike flowers, you know, you typically want a number if it's a birthday or to say happy anniversary or congratulations or whatever. Like, so there's very personalizable elements to a balloon bouquet that's maybe different than a flower bouquet. So you've got that already that complexity of needing to have take, you know, many people will take something off the shelf, like a bundle of balloons or a single balloon. But the majority of people want that plus, that sort of customizable, unique component, right? And so you think about the need to, you're adding complexity now because A, I've got a ton of choices. How do I make it easy to be able to, uh, to see the select, the, the one maybe bundle of the sort of the generic happy birthday grouping, but then I want that one special thing that's either got the initials of my friend or the number of their birth date or whatever that thing is that's going to make it unique and stand out. How do I make it easy for them to find that, to put it together, to visualize it? Especially when you think about whether you've gone to a party city store and you see that wall. I mean, it is a massive wall of balloons, like from floor to ceiling, basically, or on the website, pages and pages of choices. It becomes a little like the, I always say like the, the cheesecake factory menu, which is almost overwhelming. It's almost too much. It becomes visualizing. Um, how do, how do we take that away so that it's not that hard? It, It does become easy to see what you want, to understand what you want, to pull that forward, to make it easy for you to bundle it together, to visualize it, to choose if you want helium or not, and then to not only check out, but to get it to you, because there's the kicker. You think about delivery in our world and you can get almost everything delivered, especially, gosh, especially pandemic. Now everything is truly being delivered. And we were no exception. We actually started same day delivery during the pandemic. Um, actually, in late April, I called my old auto days, called Hertz, knew some people there. were like, hey, you guys are probably not renting a lot of cars during the pandemic. Would you like to join this uh, 
join us in, in a new business case and help us deliver parties is particularly balloons. And they jumped in, they're not doing it anymore, but they did for like the first 10 months, which is super fantastic. But delivering balloons is not only convenient, it's kind of essential. Because if you have ever gone and tried to get a big group of balloons, a big bouquet, a bundle of balloons, and if you've got something short of a, my case, a Jeep or a minivan or some a big SUV, it's kind of a struggle to get those balloons in your car. God bless the people with the Priuses who are trying to jam a bunch of bouquets in there because it, uh, it is no easy feat. And so what we're talking about with the easy is not just the actual shopping experience. It is, but it's also that delivery. Um, when you think about mom for birthday, she's got so many pieces. And again, this comes to us wanting to provide the entire experience and not just the individual SKUs or items. She's thinking about the whole thing, but not only, only is she thinking and shopping for the whole party experience, she's then having to plan out how to get those things to the location she's having the party. So you've got the, you know, you've got the balloons, you've got the cake, you got the plates and the favors and all those things. But the thing is that the cake and the balloons are perishable goods, right? They don't last forever. A plate might, but the others won't. And so you have to time everything out. And so that kind of making it easy component is one, understanding that journey that she's on from the inspiration of the, I know there's something coming up. What is it that I want to do for how many people helping her imagine it, which by the way, we're not doing great right now, but we're building it. And I'm very excited about what's coming this year, by the way. Um, visualizing it and then thinking through how to get it to her, even if it's not all at once, if you're breaking it down in pieces in the way that she wants it with as little stress as possible, again, in one click, one fell swoop, where we think ahead for her, all of those, all of those components, the, the stuff, as well as the delivery, the setup, in some cases we're doing, we've got a party planning team, so we can actually help you imagine and and put it together all the way through to we are we have a vision and we're working on it to be able to include a type of marketplace where we can have everything else that things that even we don't sell directly things like you need a bouncy castle or a magician or a caterer or a musician or a cleanup crew um those are the components that we're looking to truly get end to end and if you could come and one stop shop this put it all together have help have a professional party planner you know not you don't have to be a millionaire to have, you don't have to have a lot of money. In most cases, it's free to you to help you put it together and visualize it and then to get it to your door without you ever having to leave or make another phone call. That in my definition would be easy. And that's what we're seeing the customers saying is what easy would look like too. And so that is our quest. Gosh, when you think about that future state of making it easy, I mean, you, you've laid it out really clearly here that making, like, it's sort of like you had to write a novel to get to the poem. You know what I mean? Where you have to do a lot to get there. But I'm glad that you're putting in the groundwork so that ultimately when we get into later in this year, which I'll ask about in a second, people start to reflect that. Um, So I'm glad that you started that with like, well, here's how it's not easy because I think that there's value in talking about that. Um, For sure. We've got a long way to go. Look, wouldn't it be a transformation if we'd already had that figured out? So, And I'm a sucker for a transformation. uh, So it wouldn't have been any fun if it would have been all figured out already. (laughs) True, true. Very true. Before I ask about 21, I want to ask the first of two questions um, around advice. The first one is probably a little more tangible than the second. The second is one that I, I tend to do every episode. But the first one is about going back to culture for just a second. Because you've told me, even off this call, but I think it's clear through it, that if you don't like the culture somewhere, you walk. 
culture, eating strategy for lunch, all that we've said here. And you've even noted in, in your history to this point, there have been some times where it's been a great, great, great fit and sometimes where it's been not so great. Well, people, just as they are looking to carve out their own avenues to authenticity, are also trying to find those fits and cut from those when they aren't the best fit. How do you find those red flags? Or rather, maybe I should ask, how can somebody look out for those kinds of things? Are there sort of markers that you have assessed over time which have let you know that, hey, I bet this isn't going to be the best fit a little bit down the road? Yeah, you know, I have, and, and a lot of it I have taken from the knowledge and, and I have benefited from the experience of others. But, you know, there's the, there's the, do you remember the Malcolm, I'm sure you know, the Malcolm Gladwell books. And it was like, of course, Tipping Point was the big one. But sure. the, the third one was Blink. Blink, and, I have read. Thank you. Right. Let's yes. talk about it. <laughs> yeah. The, when you think about Blink, for those people on the who are listening who haven't read it, it's all of his books, by the way, are very easy to read and they're short. So they're, you know, I, I recommend them, um, especially if you've got a little downtime in this pandemic. But Blink is kind of about those Blink moments. And it, it reflects on, um, I'm, I'm not going to do it justice, but Mal- Malcolm Gladwell probably would spin just to know that I'm just going to try to paraphrase in a sentence what he put together in that book. But what I took away from it, my takeaway was the Blink moments are those moments when you you feel something, you kind of are sure of it, even on a subconscious level, before you start to analyze it in your brain, those moments are the ones that are probably correct. We tend to have those blink moments and then we let our, you know, our higher level brain sort of manipulate and analyze and tear it apart. And we, we, you know, especially I know I can convince yourselves to do something the complete opposite of where your instinct was. And I find that the blink moments when it comes to culture are the ones that I have learned to rely on most. And what I say that is it's not, sometimes it's profound and sometimes not. But if you, if you wake up in the morning and you've got anxiety and I look, that doesn't mean that there's like, I look, it's not for me to say, even though I love my job and I love being here and everything I do that I don't wake up with anxiety periodically about something. Look, we're presenting to the board. I'm anxious. About, of course, I'm not suggesting that, but anxiety because of you, you, you feel fear or you're, you know, just, just something more innate that is less about trying to be the best you can and do the best you can. And more about feeling sort of, you know, I don't want to make it too Machiavellian, but to feel sort of this as though things are closing in on you that you, you, you don't know where you stand. You don't know how you feel like there's that for me is a blink moment. And I'm not suggesting that if you have that, you should turn and cut and run, but I'm suggesting that you should not ignore that. And that, that, that feeling is something that you should explore. And my, my best advice that I didn't take myself early on that I, I take now and I try to give to others is when I say, don't ignore it. I don't mean just, just don't think about it and acknowledge it to yourself. I mean, talk to your, talk to others about it. Talk to your significant other, your spouse or whoever, talk to your best friend, you know, somebody that you can kind of talk to your mentor if you have one and then go talk to your boss. I just find the direct path is often the best path because in some cases that anxiety is founded. And in most cases, it's not. Most cases it's not, you will go and you will find that there's a totally different reason, but we, we out of wanting to not be difficult or, you know, wanting to be professional or not trying to cause be, you know, be the one who sounds like they're complaining or whatever, or hard to deal with that. We end up holding that back 
And those things fester and they fester not only within you, but there is a, there's an intangible sort of, uh, you know, aura that comes about that other people see, whether it's in just the slightest facial tick or expression or energy level in a meeting, and it becomes real and it creates a, a tension that eventually can be large and create a lot of negativity, whereas it could have been nipped in the bud early and addressed immediately. And again, like I said, my I believe probably 85 to 90% can be dealt with quickly and you will end up being able to find a happy place. But in those 10%, maybe, you know, and I'm making that up, I have no statistical guide for this, but I'm going to call it 10% of the cases where it's real and it's true. That gives you a chance to address and deal with it in an amicable, positive way before things get so negative where it becomes contentious and there's hard feelings and, you know, arguments and, you know, lawyers and all the rest of those kinds of things. Um, that's, that's, that's kind of what I mean by culture is that you've in a workplace. And I think especially now in this pandemic, I just think it's more relevant now than ever. It's so much harder to have that. I think we'll put it this way. I think it's much easier to have that feeling of uncertainty in a zoom, um, work culture than in a personal work culture, because you aren't able to be around people. You, You pick up on things because they're the only clues that you can pick up on. And it's easy to take and absorb them in a way maybe that they weren't necessarily intended. Um, and partially because we're all living in a more stressful world, I think anyway, but um, that that is where it's most important, I think, to have open dialogue. And if it's, by the way, an environment where open dialogue isn't really something that's encouraged or you know appreciated, that might be a signal for you as well. I mean, some people like they would prefer to lock that down and that's fine. But I think the majority of us, it's a healthier place to be able to to talk about. It's like any relationship, marriage or children or whatever, friends, like you let those things like, like don't go to sleep angry with your spouse. I think that kind of the same is true for work. You can't let it fester too long. You know, you just got to, and you can talk about it in a very civil, like, you know, I was feeling this, is there something I'm missing? I'm just, it, there's, it's such an easy thing to for me to say. But if you can actually do it, A, it's a lift off of the person's shoulders and B, you're going to get a real answer that I think is going to give you clarity. I'm not necessarily sure it'll always give you a peace of mind because you may not like the answer, but at least you'll have clarity. And clarity, I think, is the thing that we we need to get and that really helps to define culture. It's that unknown that we let sort of rift that creates, that, that not only hurts your personal culture, but actually can bring an entire corporate culture down if that's let to kind of grow. That's really thoughtful feedback. And by the way, listeners, if you're interested in books like that, like Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, I also read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, similar, um, although slightly longer, I believe, in length. Got two more questions for you, Julie. Uh, Both quick, actually the first one quick, maybe the first one's fast and the second one is slow. First one, 2021, is that the year the parties make a comeback? (laughs) Baby, I'm hoping a pent up party is the term of the year. Yep. Party demand, let's hope, like this summer... That's my plan. So I'm I'm hopeful and positive, and I think I've, I'm onto something by saying we've all got a lot of pent up party in us. Looking forward to seeing what comes of that. Uh, hopefully, you will as well, both from what's around you as well as how the business performs, which I'm sure will be great. Secondly, here's the other advice question. This one I ask most of my guests, but uh, it's because you guys have knowledge that that others really don't in this specific area, which is that our listeners are always on the hunt to figure out ways to illuminate their brands or their own 
personal truth. I call this on the show, their avenues to authenticity. What are they for any given person or any given business? Now, you've been able to do that for a number of businesses, at least over the last 20 years that we talked about from Dodge all the way through to today and even prior to that. And I'm curious what advice you might have to those who might be at the beginning of that sort of journey, somebody who might emulate your story, um, what advice you might be able to give to them on how to find their own personal truth and their own avenues to authenticity. I'd I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about that. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that culture piece that I was saying, kind of that blink moment a little bit, Adam, I guess, is, you know, (laughs) we always, and now I've got a 22-year-old or 19-year-old, so you can see it in them. And um, it, it's that it's that the belief that you can do anything in some cases. And then the other is then the, the letting too much information come in. And God knows we have too much information flowing into us and available to us now. Um, that can kind of stop and stymie you. And, you know, to some extent, and this is by no, I had no intention of bringing this up, but it's a little bit of why I do my own, my own podcast. It's called The Conversational. I think I shared with you, it, what I do is I interview other people that I have met through my career who are super successful. And I interview them because I want them to share their story, not not their business story so much, but their personal story. Because I've never met a person who laid out a plan for their future and their career. And they are where they are because the plan that they laid out the 20 years before went accordingly and got them exactly where they are. Boom, like mic drop just how I set it out. It worked just fine. I'm not, I, there probably are people like that. I have never met them and I've met a lot of great successful people. And the point is, is that every one of us run into these holy shit moments or Hoshimos in our lives. And it is those moments kind of blink moments, right? That where we, we can then say, we pack it in like, okay, I failed. It's horrible. I, you know, I'm a failure. I guess that's not meant to be. I should do something totally different. Or you look at it and you're like, okay, I'm going to take this and I'm going to learn from it. And I might pivot slightly, but I'm not giving up. And I'd like people to hear those stories so that they're inspired to not give up. And I I say that because you just asked me this question about your culture. It is that. It is the, you know, using, like having a point of view and a dream. It doesn't mean that you're going to, like, you know, I got the dream to be whatever president. If you don't end up being president, what is it that motivated you to get there? It's that sort of self-introspection of what is why was I wanting to do that? I wanted to be service. I want to be of service to people. What kind of people for doing what kind of thing? Like you can start to peel that back and then find out kind of what is your true self and what really inspires you and makes you happy. And listening to that feedback from others and not listening so much to the negativity to pull you back. Um, but instead of using that to ask new questions, to be able to explore perhaps a slightly different adjunct, you know, tributary to that river, if you will, versus assuming that you have to flow down the main path. And that's the, that's, that's for me, the the culture. And that's, that's why, you know, from my perspective, I always had a belief that I could, I could do what I could do. What I learned over time is I can't do it well and be happy if I'm not in a culture that works for me. And I also know that I can do a lot of things in a lot of different industries um, again, as long as culture is there and, and the right kind of support structure and infrastructure is there and that I love a transformation, I thrive on that challenge. And I've got people and friends I know who hate that. They absolutely hate that sort of uncertainty. And, and that's the, that, those are the things that I think you just have to start, stop, take time and do self-assessments on 
and then move accordingly, not to just become paralyzed and stop in your tracks, but to really take every success and every failure and to really be introspective for a minute. And I'm not suggesting everybody has to go into deep therapy, but like take a minute, you know, and think about it and really understand for yourself, what is this? And what is it that I liked? What is it that I learned? And then, and then try again, because, you know, it is true that we, the failures are where we learn the most in life. And so I use them as a gift and an opportunity to be able to, to understand my personal culture. And then, you know, kind of getting to my earlier point, my own definition of success, because I think the idea that success is defined as stature and power and money is a bad definition. Listeners, heed these words and then go tune into some more. The Conversational Podcast uh, by Julie Rame available on Apple and all other major directories. You can find more stories just like this from people who have walked paths similar to Julie, although there are plenty there that have their own twists and turns. And for sharing some of those twists and turns in your story today, Julie, thank you for briefly bringing the party to us. And I can't wait to see what happens this year. Hopefully many parties to come. But for now, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Man, oh man, am I hoping for any parties this year. And I know where I'll stop when I need to stock up for it. Julie, in the meantime, thank you for your story and for telling us a little bit more about your life and especially about your thoughts on culture. I thought that was great. Of course, you the listener, I hope you enjoyed what you heard and that you enjoyed listening to this podcast in general. If you do, here's what you can do next. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen, leave a rating and review. That's great. But also... Follow me on social, LinkedIn mostly, Authentic Avenue, where we're just over 200 followers, and myself as well, Adam Connor. And you can email me too, adam at authenticavenuemedia.com. If your business is thinking about getting in to audio content for any purpose, I know a heck of a lot about that, and I can help you out. For now, I'll let you go until next week. And until then, this is your host, Adam Connor, saying until I get real again with you, thanks for taking a walk with me down Authentic Avenue.